Now, we're in the middle of a series entitled Live Out Loud. Live Out Loud, talking about how we might be courageous and contagious in our walks with the Lord, but specifically seeking to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those in our lives who are, in fact, lost. And we've gone through several uh, sermons, several sermons in this series. In fact, I believe this is our sixth week in this series. We started out with uh, Pastor Brad preaching a sermon called Stop Wishing You Had Something Better Than God's Word. Stop wishing you had something better to offer people than God's Word. And sometimes we can think, oh, if only people, if only Jesus would just come down and just do miracles, if only we could have great signs and wonders, then so many people would be saved and evangelism would be so much easier. And my lost friends and family members would just believe because it would be undeniable. But that's not necessarily the case. In fact, I was just thinking about, I don't know if Pastor Brad spoke about this, but John chapter 6, and we're not going to go there today, but in John chapter 6, we see Jesus feeding thousands of people. He feeds them miraculously, okay? And for his next trick, he walks on water. Okay, and everybody sees him do that. And then he starts talking about the fact that he is the bread of life. And you know what starts happening when he starts talking about truth? You know what happens to that crowd? People are like, yeah, I got to go. I got that thing. I got to. The crowd starts dwindling. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller. In fact, they say, this is a hard thing that you're saying to me. I'm not sure I understand this. And he goes on to explain and talks about the fact that, you know, you're going to have to eat his flesh. I mean, you're going to have to receive all of him, all of him, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be saved from judgment. And by the end of that chapter, there's just a few people, just a few of his followers. And Jesus says, are you going to go too? And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go, right? For you have the works of... To whom shall we go? For you you walked on water. To, To whom shall we go? Where else can we get a free meal? To whom shall we go, he says. For you have the words of eternal life. It was the words. Not that those things weren't really, really helpful in him establishing his authority, the miracles that he did. That we're, we're thrilled about those. But what do people stick to? People stuck around because they were so impacted by Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. His words are what impacted people. And sometimes when we say, oh, but that's all I have to offer people. Friends, that's all we need. We sow seeds of the gospel, the word of God, and people are saved. Next, we looked at a message called Stop Thinking That God's Sovereignty Gets in the Way, thinking that if God's in control, then why do we do anything? Let's just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. But God uses us. He's in control, (coughs) excuse me, but he has chosen to use us to accomplish his goodwill in our lives and in other people's lives. Then I preached a message called Stop Making It So Complicated. God's called us to sow seeds. We don't need to modify the seed. We don't need to know exactly what the weather is. We sow the seed. We sow the seed of the gospel and stop overthinking it and do it. And then we get excited about making an impact. Get it? That was the next message that Pastor Brad preached. And he gave, gave us helpful, uh, clarifying illustrations and hints as to how to think through how do we make the most positive impact for Christ. Let's get excited about really being used by God to impact people's lives. And then last week, uh, we looked at a message called Keep the Message Clear and Simple, where uh, Pastor Brad encouraged us to really just bottom line it and keep it as clear and as simple as possible and took us through what is more popularly known as the Romans Road, right? That evangelistic presentation right from the Word of God. And today, the title of our message is Find an Approach That Fits you best. And I had asked you to open to Romans chapter 7, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. So, out of reverence for the word of God, would you do me a favor and please stand 
And read along silently as I read the word of God aloud, beginning in verse 15 from Romans chapter 7. This is what the word of God says. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, we come before you grateful to be here. And repeating the words of the song that we sang earlier, we ask you to speak. Speak, O Lord. Would you put your word deep within us? Would you transform our minds and our hearts? Lord, we are thinking today of those whom we love most on this Valentine's Day. But we remember, Lord, that 1 John 4 and verse 8 tells us that God is love. Lord, you are the greatest example of love that we could ever have before us. And your word reveals the truth of what it means to truly love. And we are thankful that we who love you love you because you first loved us. So thank you for changing our hearts and our minds. Thank you for taking a step into my life to change me and draw me close to you. Would you do that today through the preaching, through the reading of your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, the title of our message today is Find an Approach That Fits You Best. So perhaps you are wondering, Why would I choose to open with a throwback of sorts to Romans chapter 7? We looked at Romans 7 in our Roman series back in March of 2014. What does this have to do with evangelism? Well, namely this. Over the course of the last several weeks, we've spoken lots about evangelism, about witnessing, about living intentionally, looking to live out loud to reach people. And the intention is to equip us to do just that, to live out loud in our daily lives as we seek to share the gospel. And while we're hoping and praying God would use this to stir us toward growth, I found by way of a few conversations that instead of being stirred toward growth and change and a passion for the lost... Some, I've sensed two things among people that I've been interacting with over the past few weeks. I had a discussion with a small group leader last week who said that while the sermon series has been really, really helpful, he said many in his group are really wrestling with a ton of guilt. A ton of guilt. They think about time that has passed and how they've been negligent when it comes to sharing Christ. And therefore, when they hear about these things, they think about the times that they could have shared, that they should have shared but didn't. And it makes them sad. Maybe that's you. 
More than that, maybe you think not just of, not just of just, oh, when I had this job, I used to be able to speak freely, or when I was at this school, I used to be able to talk a lot about these things, and I didn't. But maybe you think of specific people, real, real people with names and faces and families and lives, nothing hypothetical or theoretical. It's very, very real to you. And maybe you've not intentionally tried to share the gospel with them, and you feel like you could never catch up and miss those opportunities and make those made right. There's just too many people in your past that you neglected to share the gospel with, and so you just feel like it's, it's overwhelming. That list of wrongs is just so long, and you don't really know what to do. Or even worse, maybe the people that come to mind have died. Maybe it's not just a matter of the list being too long, but maybe literally the clock has run out and there's no more opportunities to make it right, even if you wanted to. They've already passed into eternity, and there's no turning back and no way to make it right. I was thinking as I prepared for this message, um, a guy, we'll call him Alex. Um, I used to run track in high school, and uh, Alex was on my team. He was a year younger than me, and um, I don't think I, well, no, let me rephrase that. I was, not, I was a Christian at the time, but I did not take advantage of the opportunities that I had to share Christ. As often as, I, as often as I see some young people doing now, I was not that bold. I wish I was more like that back then, but that time has passed. But I'm encouraged when I see young people being bold in their classes and on their teams. Well, one day as um, life just happens... Alex found himself at a keg party, which were pretty popular in our school at the time, sadly, or not in the school. Maybe we don't do them in the school. That would be really bad. First all-boys Catholic schools have keg parties in the school. That's not what we do. But a keg party after school at a local park. And um, these were, sadly, they were pretty common. And uh, Alex was very inebriated and walked home as he did just countless numbers of times before and took a shortcut by the railroad tracks that went by his house. And he was hit by a train that was going 70 miles an hour and died. Just instantly died. They had to identify him by his dental records. Missed opportunities are hard to deal with. I think about that often. And maybe you have a story like that where there's someone that you had opportunity to share with and you didn't realize that there was a different plan for their life than you'd realized and now that opportunity is gone. Is that you? Are you kicking yourself because of missed opportunities in in days gone by? Do you find yourself feeling guilty or ashamed at the end of the day if you didn't get to live out loud in a specific measurable way do you just feel a a ton of pressure because my gosh every every weekend we're hearing these things and we're talking about them during the week and i'm excited but i'm also intimidated and this is why i wanted to start out reading from romans chapter 7 because i want you to realize this and you might have seen this in other areas of your life guilt is a lame motivator guilt is a lame motivator shame is a terrible motivator We need to remember that they're miserable motivators to getting us to live out loud, to getting us to grow in any area of our lives, including and especially uh, evangelism. And I need to be careful because this could be a sermon in and of itself. How do we deal with guilt and shame? Guilt and shame don't deliver. You understand? Guilt and shame don't deliver. They're signs. They're not destinations. 
God uses guilt in our lives to point us to something, but we're not supposed to stay there. You need to listen to that. As Christians, God uses guilt and shame to point us somewhere, but doesn't intend for us to stay there. And if your motivation to live out loud among those God crosses your path is shame and guilt because you haven't already done so, you're not going to A, do it. And then if you do do it, you're not going to reflect the grace and the mercy and the help and the hope of Christ you're wanting others to see because we don't preach messages that stop at guilt. We preach messages about guilt that lead to repentance, guilt that comes with pointing to the cross. And Paul certainly knew what it was like to be frustrated with himself. We just read that in Romans chapter seven, where he says, I don't, I don't understand my own actions. For I I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. If you read through that text and just make believe it wasn't in the scriptures for a second, this sounds like a lunatic. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I do want to do, that I don't want to do, I do. And I know that I want that in me nothing good dwells, but I find another law in my members. It's like, you're a nut, dude. How many of you can relate to him? You're a nut. But we know that wrestling, right? We know that struggle. But here's the important thing. He doesn't stop in Romans 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If that's where it ended, I'd wonder if he hung himself. I'm serious. If that's that's just a hopeless rhetorical question, if that's where it ends, that's terrible. But he doesn't stay there staring at himself in a mirror of guilt and shame. He moves on to what he said in Romans 8. A a new mirror of sorts reminding him of the truth of God's word and who he is. Not in and of himself. Not because he was a Pharisee. Not because he he was really, really smart. Not because he was really bold. Who he is in Christ. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now listen, I don't want to be a wet blanket on the white hot conviction the Lord may be bringing upon your life. Realize it, acknowledge it, lean into it. But make sure you come back to who you are in Christ, who you are because of Christ, and then live a life that is pleasing to Christ, remembering that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Guilt and shame are lame motivators. Guilt and shame do not deliver. They point us to something. When we realize our guilt, we seek to repent and to grow. The guilt hits us in the gut, and it hurts. But we, we get the wind knocked out of us, but then we start breathing again, and we remember who we are in Christ so we don't just stay there reading our list of wrongs. Look at how you dropped the ball. Who's going to bring Alex back now? How could you have dropped the ball this long That is not of the Lord. That's one of the things that I sense people are wrestling with. And there's something else, and we'll spend the rest of our time looking at that today. We'll move the guilt and shame aside. Spend the rest of our time looking at this second thing that I've sensed as I've spoken to different people. And that's thinking they're just not cut out for evangelism because they don't have the right personality or the right temperament or the right giftedness or whatever. And let's face it, people's souls hang in the balance. There's a lot of things I'd prefer messing up than my sharing the gospel with somebody else. This is, this is important stuff. The message of hope in Jesus Christ with someone who needs it. I don't want to mess this up, but listen, 
The problem with thinking you don't have the right personality is you're assuming that there is such a thing as the right personality or the right approach. Do you understand that? If you think I'm just not, I don't have the right personality for this. I just don't think I'm that guy. I don't think I'm that smart, that gifted, that bold, that, that. You're, you're assuming that there is one cookie cutter person who is cut out to do this and you're not that. And what I hope to show to you from the word of God is there's no one size fits all really when it comes to anything, but when it comes to sharing the gospel. And this is our 23rd Sunday together here at the Fort Thomas campus. We're almost a half year old. Aren't we cute and little? We're almost a half year old. We're almost, uh, 23 Sundays ago on our launch Sunday, I preached a message entitled The Multicolored Grace of God. And in that grace, I said there really is no such thing as one size fits all. There are, there are precious few things that will fit me and Roger. It's just, it's just not going to happen. His socks are like long johns on me, right? All right. A shirt on him is a poncho on me. There's really precious few things that really, really fit all. One size fits all means this comes in one size, so take it or leave it. That, that's what one size fits all means. First Peter 4 and verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And listen, friends. God uses all different types of people to reach all different types of people. Do you understand that? He uses all different types of people to reach all different types of people. Different personalities, different backgrounds, different methods, all used for the glory of God and the building of his kingdom. And you might see someone standing on top of a milk crate downtown Cincinnati, boldly preaching the gospel, calling people to repentance in Jesus Christ. And you kind of scoff at that because that's really not you. And since that approach is neither one you you would take and receive, nor one that you could deliver because it's not your personality and just not who you are, you think he's all wet. But try telling that to my friend Ron, who said a street preacher like that was instrumental in God saving him. You might go to a funeral and hear a pastor using that as an opportunity to call people to Christ and think, that's not good. Really? There are people mourning here. He should be comforting people who are mourning the death of a loved one. But try telling that to my friend whose father was saved at a funeral. True story. He was saved at a funeral, had four kids, two of which went on into full-time ministry. And one was a missionary and the other one's a pastor. Or maybe you think those approaches are effective. God uses them. I don't have a problem with them. No, no beef with them, but they're just not me. I can't do that. But I have, hopefully, good news for you. There's no one way, one singular approach that is best. 1 Peter 4.10 reminds us that God's grace is multicolored, multifaceted. It's varied. There's no one perfect way. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is share with you six biblical approaches to sharing the gospel. And the key word here is biblical. Six approaches that we can find from the scriptures. This isn't like a, some 12-step program that I'm going to tell you how to do based on my own experience. It has nothing to do with that. This is not me telling you what some guy says worked. These are six approaches that I can see from the word of God so that you can be encouraged that you've not stumbled upon some seminar that shows you six ways to share that I think are helpful or that I've seen work, but then you wonder if it's God honoring, okay? This isn't an infomercial. I'm not the sham wow guy. This is what we're doing to look at God's word and see what are some approaches? How has God used people throughout redemptive history to deliver the message of the gospel? 
So what I'm going to show you is based on biblical precedence and is uh, adapted from the book Courageous Christi- uh, C- Contagious Christianity. So what I'd like you to do now is turn over to Acts chapter 2. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. As we looked at our first approach, which we'll call, rightfully, the direct approach. Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 22. Peter says this. He's in the middle of preaching a sermon. And he says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So suffice it to say, Peter didn't mince words. Peter said what was on his mind. Peter was bold. And sometimes it worked out for, for very good, if, you, if you're familiar with the scriptures. And other times it worked out not in Peter's favor. But that's how God had wired Peter. That's how God wired Simon Peter. And Peter didn't mince words and God used him in situations, listen, where that was needed and helpful. So do you understand, here he is preaching to people who had a part in crucifying Jesus Christ. Now, it's one thing to say that all of us had a part in crucifying the Lord, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because of the sin that we brought to the table. So there is, we could say, wow, he did that for me as a Christian. These were people who would have been there perhaps saying, crucify him. Crucify him. These are people who may have been there watching it happen. These are people who might have been just standing in a crowd while three people just kind of hung up there and died and just spoken to other people. These are people who would have really been there. And Peter says, hey, I want to call this to your attention. Number one, you killed him. Number two, it didn't work. He's alive. And he calls this to their attention and God uses it. And if you skip down to verse 41, or not verse 41, where am I, 24, sorry. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, we're skipping through this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So did God use it? Yes, they were cut to the heart and they said, what do we do about this? And Peter said to them, repent And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So it wasn't Peter being these blowhard preachers just yelling at what people were doing wrong and then not giving hope. I want you to be careful about those people. Okay, We don't preach what is wrong and not tell people how to be made right. Okay, he's not just preaching guilt. Hey, you're the ones who killed Jesus. Guess what? He's alive. (laughs) And just walks away. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying, look what you've done. How could you do this? You know why? Because when you look at somebody and you say, how could you do this? That makes them feel what? Guilty and ashamed. How could you do this? And then you stop there. Then you're having them just pitch a tent right by the sign, but not telling them where to go. They say, what shall we do? And Peter doesn't say, well, you should feel miserable. That's what you should do. Hope you're happy. Hope you're happy. Now he's alive and he's pierced. 
And now he's in heaven. I just saw him go up into the clouds. No, he says, repent. Repent, be baptized. There's hope. There's hope. Repent and be baptized. This promise is for you. It's for anyone whom the Lord would call. And then look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So suffice it to say the direct approach works. True? 3,000 souls? 3,000 souls. And that's how God used Peter. That's how Peter was wired by God. He's a fire, ready, aim kind of guy. And that's how he rolled. And God used it for his glory and the good of his people. 3,000 of his people. Here's what you need to realize. Do you realize that there are a lot of people who will not, listen to me, who will not come to Christ unless someone like Peter gets in their face? There are. Lots of people who will just, they, they're just not going to, nothing's going to get their attention. They're hardwired a different way. They have a different temperament. They have different, different, just a different way of thinking. You may not be that person, but there are people out there who will not come to Christ until someone like Peter, who minces no words, gets in their face with a clear, bold message. And Peter's personality was perfect for that opportunity. And if you have a personality like Peter, God has opportunities for you too. It's true. And if you're not that woman or man, listen to me. Don't be a hater for those who, do, who are wired like that. Okay? Don't, don't hate on people who are wired like that because God has opportunities for them too. Some people need to hear the gospel in a really bold way. And God uses people like that. And if someone is preaching truth, albeit boldly, don't judge. God uses people like that. So if this is you, ask God to show you opportunities. Ask God to show you opportunities. Ask him to dial you back a little and to give you grace and truth. You probably err more on the truth side than the grace side. So ask, but God can, God can redeem that. God can use that. Ask him to use you and to show you opportunities you have to preach that bold message of the gospel. Flip over to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Nobody would accuse the Apostle Paul of being a lightweight, really, in any ministry category. And Paul could definitely deliver a bold message just like or maybe even bolder than Peter. In fact, Paul gets in Peter's face. We see that later on in the scriptures as well. But here what I want you to see is the intellectual approach where Paul, Paul reasons with the people of Athens. Look at Acts chapter 17 and beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue and the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others says he, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you, that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, that what these things mean. We need to remember that when you say somebody healed, uh, healed people, fed thousands of people, walked on water, and was risen from the dead, that's strange. Right? If I'm not talking about Jesus, would you find that to be strange? Yes, you would. Say yes. Please. It would be really strange if I'm like, my uncle, jo you know, like, like, that would be really strange. 
But we're so used to it. You have to, when, the, when a lost and dying world says, listen, you, you believe in a guy who walked on water and who rose himself from the dead. That's really odd. Why do they think it's odd? They're so lost. No, no, let's, let's granted, right? Touche. That is odd. But you've been given the gift of faith and you understand that that's what Jesus, what, what is the truth about Jesus Christ. But lost people look and say, this is really odd. Don't say, no, it's not. Yeah, it is. It's just true. Sorry. Anyway, verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what all these means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Do you see what he's doing? He's reasoning with them. You say, well, that's really bold preaching. It's not. It's really more of a dialogue. He's reasoning with them, and he's understanding where they come from, understanding their argument, and he's presenting intelligent argument back to them. And God providentially uses Paul in Greece and Rome to explain these truths about God's nature and our sin and Christ's solution. And if you were to to read on, you'll see Paul, after having spoken at the Areopagus, which was a place where law and philosophy and religion was discussed. I mean, look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, we still think you're weird, But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. God uses people like this all the time. Some people think he's a nut. Some people's hearts were pricked. And all are saved by grace through faith, but some need to see the sufficiency of evidence that undergirds our faith before they believe. That's how some people think. That's how some people are wired. And so God, in his wisdom and compassion, has people like Paul and perhaps you who are able to reason with people. Maybe you're not that bold preacher, but you say, yeah, but I could sit down and, and have a little, uh, a little pseudo debate or, or sit down and reason with people who have intellectual uh, opposition to the gospel and they want to just help have someone think through it with them and not just say, you just got to be saved. You just got to accept it by faith. That might be you. And if that's you, God can use you. God can use you. Perhaps you're one who's able to reason with the thinking lost. Sometimes there's the lost that don't think, and sometimes there's the lost who are lost, and they have reasons for being lost. And they need you to answer those reasons for being lost, to give an answer for the faith that is within you with meekness and in fear. That might be you. I had a friend who used to, this is a a fairly effective way to start a conversation with someone about God. He used to go to people, people on the train and coffee shops. And he would say, ask me a really hard question about God. So ask me a really hard question about God. And some people would say, no. And some would say, all right, and ask a question. Now, a couple of things would happen. First of all, there's not that many questions people ask. But every once in a while, someone would throw him a curveball. 
But he was this guy. He was very much like Paul, and he could reason with them, and he could give them answers that left them thinking. And God used them in, God used my friend in speaking to them. I used to love hanging out with them and getting to these discussions. Can you ask me a really hard question about God? So you'll find that if you do that enough, the questions become easier because they're the same questions, because lots of people have the same beefs with God and the gospel. And every once in a while, he would get a question that was a little harder and took a little longer to explain. And every once in a while, he would get a question that he couldn't answer, and he would say, can I get back to you? And most times, people would say, yeah, here's my number. Yeah, sure, here's my email address. And then he got a follow-up opportunity. Maybe that's you. Flip over to the Gospel of John in chapter 19. John chapter 19. This is the account of the man that was, no, not John 19. What's that? No, I have the wrong. John chapter 9. What's 10 chapters among friends? John chapter 9. Turn to John chapter 9. It's when Jesus heals a man born blind. I turn to John 19. I'm like, I think this is the crucifixion. He didn't heal anyone. John chapter 9. Sorry about that. My fault. John chapter 9. This is when Jesus heals a man who was born blind. Okay? Not someone who received blindness. This man had never seen for his entire life. He was a man who was born blind. Skip down to verse 24. For the second time, they called, so just to skip ahead, basically Jesus healed this man who was born blind, gave him the gift of sight, and now everybody in the synagogue and all the Jewish leaders are crying foul, saying, no, he didn't really do it, Uh, it, he he shouldn't do this, you shouldn't believe it's of him, this is of the devil, blah, 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 blah. So they ask him again, look at verse 24, for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner, this man being Jesus. In verse 25 he said, listen, hey. Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. Here's one thing I do know, and I'm going to the bank with it. That though I was blind, now I see. I was blind. I am now not blind. I am looking at you. About 30 minutes ago, I was unable to do this. Now I can do this. Here's one thing. I don't know if he's a sinner. I don't know anything about that, but I know I can see right now. And when the man born blind was healed by Jesus, he didn't know much about Jesus except that very simple fact, what he had just experienced moments before. And God even uses him to testify to what the Lord had done in his life. Here God uses a brand new baby believer for his glory simply by him talking about what the Lord had done in his life moments before. Maybe that's you. Does it excite you to tell people about what God's done in your life? Maybe that's you, does, or maybe you've never done it before, but does the thought of it make your heart beat a little faster? Like, yeah, I love telling people the story of how God did this in my life. I love telling people the story about how God healed me from this affliction or how God rescued me from anxiety or how God worked in my life in a really, really powerful way. And you might be sitting here thinking, I'd love to do that, but I've had 20-20 vision my whole life. Shoot, I'm out. Like, no, that's not, that's not the point. See, here's what you have to also understand. The dramatic stories that people share, they're awesome. But let's face it, the vast majority of us just don't live lives that are that dramatic. 
the vast majority of us live lives that are pretty, pretty just normal and pretty humdrum. And sometimes the, the really, really dramatic stories about how someone preached the gospel to the person and they rejected it and they took a vacation to the beach and they went outside and they went into the waves and there was a, a huge riptide and it sucked them out. And all of a sudden he cried out to Jesus for salvation and it was, it was as if the waters parted and they could just walk back on dry land. Those are great dramatic stories. That's great. How many of you have had that experience? Not many. Who raised their hand? (laughs) So if you think about it, your story of what the Lord has done in your life, don't ever say, my story's not that special. If God did something in your life, it's pretty stinking special. If God has saved you, it's pretty stinking special. You were going to hell without a hope. And if you're not going to hell and now you're going to heaven, that's pretty stinking special. And the means that God used in your life to bring that about are pretty special. Share the story. Tell the story. That might be you. You might hear me saying these things and say, yeah, I have some stories of how God has acted in my life. And I love talking about that. Sandy loves talking about that. Well, I don't know if God can use me. Try it. Try it. Tell people about what the Lord has done in your life. Quickly now, as time is getting away from me, the interpersonal approach. In, uh, we're, gonna, we're not going to turn there, but you could look another time. Matthew uses the interpersonal approach. When we look uh, at Luke chapter 5, where he invites other tax collectors right after he follows Jesus to a feast. So he decide, Jesus says, come follow me. He decides to follow him. And then as he's, follow, as he's following, he says, you know what, let's have a feast. He invites the people that he knows from existing relationships at this feast. So it's, it's, it's Matthew who decides to follow him, a bunch of other tax collectors, and Jesus. So that's the first thing Matthew does after he's saved is simply work his network, right? Simply just say, okay, I know this person, I know this person, I know this person, I know this person. Hey, who wants to eat? If you feed them, they will come. They come. Jesus is there, and it's an opportunity to expose them to truth. Matthew now knows Jesus, and for years he's known many tax collectors, and everyone loves a party and a free meal, so he opens his home and invites Jesus and his tax collector friends and lets the chips fall where they may. Maybe that's you. Maybe you have a, a for, from what, for whatever reason, school, work, just living in the same place for a long time, you have a huge network of people. Maybe it's all in your family. You have a huge network of people that you know, and, and many of them are lost. Did you ever think of doing something like that? Maybe you have a network of interpersonal relationships with people, and some of them are lost like that. And I think of uh, J.D. and Sarah Rogers. They open up their home and have an, an Easter egg hunt every year. They set up a tent They cater the thing. I went to it last year. They cater the thing, and they hide Easter eggs all over their property in the woods, the tree line behind them, and people, tons of people come. And these are people that J.D. works with. J.D. works for Great American Insurance. These are people that J.D. works with. And as I'm talking to these people, they're like, oh, where do you live? And I said, I live about, you know, not 10 minutes away, just over in Florence. Where do you live? And they go, Finneytown. Finneytown? J.D. lives in Union. You know where that is? Not near Finneytown. But yeah, they said, yeah, we come every year. Really? Where do you live? Hamilton. Hamilton? Like county? No. Ohio. Oh, that's also like not near Union. <laughs> yeah, we come every year. I work with JD. I know so-and-so. We come, my kids love it. And they hide these Easter eggs, and they feed them. They preach the gospel. You've got one son working as a DJ, mixing things. We've got another son over here flying a drone, videotaping the whole thing. They're a really cool family. And they share the gospel with these people. And then they invite them to church. 
He works his network. He uses the network of people that he already has relationships with, that they already have people from the neighborhood, people that they work with, invite them to their home, put out a spread, hide the Easter eggs, play some music, share the gospel, invite them to church. Win. Which brings me to the next approach, the invitational approach. Turn over to John chapter 4. So we spent some time looking at this last year, uh, John chapter 4, the, uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus interacts with her, and as a result of his interaction with her, she comes to believe in Christ, and Jesus performs no miracle, no miracle, it's just talking, there's no, nothing miraculous happens here except the fact that she's saved, I mean, that's pretty miraculous, but he doesn't make, in fact, they, he doesn't make water appear, in fact, I pointed out last, last year, None of them get water. That's the, kind of the funny thing is they come to the well and none of them get the water that they wanted, right? So there's no miracle here, but it's the words of Jesus that have an impact on this woman's life. And look what she does. Take a look at verse uh, 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, what? Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what? The woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've now heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus has a conversation with her. She leaves her water jar. She runs into the town. Which is, a, which is a half miracle in and of itself, given who she was and the shame and reproach that she had with her. She runs into the town to the people that I think she was trying to avoid. And now she says, you've got to come and see. Come see. Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. That's it. That's it. Simple invitation. Come see that guy. Did God use it? Yes. In fact, so much so that I think it's kind of, I'm glad it's in the text right there, but it's, it's kind of funny that at the end of John 4, or excuse me, at the end of that account, verse 42, they said to the woman, we just want to make sure you realize that we are not here because of you anymore. That guy is awesome, okay? It is no longer because of your testimony, it's because of him. It's not just what he did in your life, that got us here, but now we've heard him. And that's why we believe and know he's the savior of the world. How many of you... This could go either way. Here we go. How many of you attend this church because somebody invited you? As in Grace Fellowship Church ever, whenever you first came to the church, you attend the church because someone invited you. Okay, raise your hands higher. Thank you. Doesn't, you're not making my point if you keep your hand low. Not work with me. Invitations are useful. Invitations are useful. It works. It gets people... Uh, under the preaching of the word of God, hopefully you've realized by God's grace that chances are no matter what I'm preaching or Pastor Brad is preaching, we tend to make a beeline for the gospel. So it's not like, well, I don't know if this is a good Sunday to bring a lost person. We try to make it a good Sunday every Sunday to bring a lost person because we want to talk about Jesus and we want to preach the gospel. Side note. And we might not have time to go over that last approach so you can look at that on your own. Side note, something occurred to me. I've heard it now 
three, two or three times. And I just want to make you, I just want to make you aware of it because I want to work on this as a church, particularly here at, at, at Fort Thomas. I think we're, God is doing great things among us. Um, and I'm really excited that we're all here. But somebody has said to me one time, they said, I really like, I really like Fort Thomas. They were visiting from out of town. Uh, they used to be part of Grace. Now they went back in town. They said, it really seems great. They were talking about it. They said, there seems like there's an in crowd. And it, do you know what that means? Not do you agree with it. You know what I mean? There seems like there's an in crowd. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, it's hard for me to put my finger on it. It just seems like, like people are so excited to be there and see each other that there's this pretty not exclusive, and they even had trouble putting their finger on it and really explaining it, but they, they said, I just feel like there's an in-crowd that might be hard to penetrate, and then it's like, okay, well, that's one person's opinion, and then somebody else said something along those lines, and I just want us to be careful. I don't really know what I'm saying right now. I just wanted to throw it out there to you and say, sometimes, at least three times over the past month, I've spoken to three different people of three different stripes, of three different areas in life, stages in life, they said something to the effect that it just seems like a, it seems like you guys are so tight because you've been with each other for so long, especially if you've been with us when we were back in Newport, right? I mean, we've been together almost three years. It feels like there's an in crowd. And I don't really know. I have some ideas when I have time to talk into it. I have some ideas to what, what we can do to maybe change that. But I just want you to be aware of that. Just as your pastor, I wanted to come before you and let you know that's something that's on my heart for us, that we would be very tightly knit, but that we would be permeable. Does that, does that make sense? That we would be a tight knit group of believers, but inclusive, inclusively tight knit. Does, does this make sense? Okay. So just keep that in mind. I don't know what that looks like for you. This is not a spanking. I'm not mad. It's just something that's on my mind and on my heart. And as I was talking about, and I mean, as I was thinking about the sermon and really thinking about the invitational approach, it would be such a shame if somebody was invited to church and then came here and found it to be a place that they felt like it was hard to break into. And they were, well, that's their problem. Well, then that's probably why they, if you think that, that's probably why they think it's hard to break into. So let's just think about that and keep that in mind and really love each other, but kind of always make sure the circle is a half circle and that there's always room for other people. Be aware of other people who are visiting, other people who are checking out the church and maybe reach out to them. I think you're doing a great job. Let's just do an even better job and make sure that we're not exclusive in our tight-knittedness. From the heart, not in the notes. It says, side note, in crowd? That's, what, that's what's in the notes, that's it. It's like, do I want to do that? And I do want to do that, so. In any event, I think we're going to stop there. Um, but I hope that you see, just in general, that there is no one way. Don't look at someone who does it really well one way and say, I'm not that guy. I'm not that girl. I can't do that. And don't look at someone who does it really well and see fruit and say, well, I'm just not, I I don't know if, I don't know if I could do it just like them. I don't know if I feel comfortable. That wouldn't work on me. There is a way. I'm confident that if you are saved and you love Jesus and he has done a work in your life, that there's a way that he can use you to impact other people for the sake of the gospel. And I would just encourage you to think about these examples, pray about these examples, maybe talk to people who know you really well. Say, do, do, I, do I fit any one of these? Do you think I'm, any, I'm having trouble? Do, do you think one of these, you, like, oh, this, yes, Joe. When I think of Joe, that's, that's the approach that I think of. I think that would fit you perfectly. Talk to people who, 
who know you well in a non-exclusive way, of course. But talk to people and ask them to speak into your life and say, you know, how, how, do, you think, how do you think I would roll with this? How can I best be used by the Lord given what you know of me, my giftedness, my strengths, my weaknesses? And let's really pray that God would use us for his glory as we seek to live out loud and share the gospel with those within our spheres, within our circles of influence, as we go, as we walk, as we work, and as we serve. Father, we come before you grateful for your word, grateful for evangelism, grateful for the fact that you would seek us out and call us out of darkness and into your marvelous, marvelous light. Lord, would you be pleased to use us Use us, Lord. Make us effective. We feel ineffective because we are ineffective without you. So make us effective for your name's sake and for the building of your kingdom and for the edification of the body, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.